Chapter 22 of The Armorer's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele de Pinerolis. The Armorer's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter 22 An Invasion. What shall be the maiden's fate? Who shall be the maiden's mate? Scott. No Giles Headley appeared to greet the travellers, though Kit Smallbones had halted at Canterbury, to pour out entreaties to St. Thomas, and the vow of a steel and gilt reliquary of his best workmanship to contain the old shoe, which a few years previously had so much disgusted Erasmus and his companion. Poor old fellow, he was too much crestfallen thoroughly to enjoy even the gladness of his little children, and his wife made no secret of her previous conviction that he was too dudder-headed not to run into some coil when she was not there to look after him. The alderman was more merciful. Since there had been no invasion from Salisbury, he had regretted the not having gone himself to Ardres, and he knew pretty well that Kit's power lay more in his arms than in his brain. He did not wonder at the small gain nor at having lost sight of the young man, and confidently expected the lost ones to appear. As to Dennet, her eyes shone quietly, and she took upon herself to send down to let Mistress Randall know of her nephew's return, and invite her to supper to hear the story of his doings. The girl did not look at all like a maiden uneasy about her lost lover, but much more like one enjoying for the moment the immunity from a kind of burthen, and, as she smiled, called for Stephen's help in her little arrangements, and treated him in the friendly manner of old times. He could not but wonder at the panic that had overpowered him for a time like a fever of the mind. There was plenty to speak of in the glories of the field of the cloth of gold, and the transactions of the knights and nobles, and Stephen held his peace as to his adventure, but Dennet's eyes were sharper than Kit's. She spied the remains of the bruise under his black curly hair, and while her father and Tib were unravelling the accounts from Kit's brain and tally-stick, she got the youth out into the gallery and observed, "'So thou hast a broken head. See, here are grandmother's lily-leaves and strong waters. Let me lay one on for thee. There, sit down on the step, then I can reach.' "'Tis well nigh whole now, sweet mistress,' said Stephen, complying, however, for it was too sweet to have those little fingers busy about him for the offer to be declined." "'How gotst thou the blow?' asked Dennet. "'Was it at single stick? Come, thou mayst tell me. "'Twas in standing up for some one.' "'Nay, mistress, I would it had been.' "'Thou hadst been in trouble,' she said, leaning on the baluster above him. "'Or did ill men set on thee?' "'That's the nearest guess,' said Stephen. "'Twas that tall father of mine aunt, "'the fellow that came here for armour and bought poor Master Michael's sword.' and slice the apple on thine hand. I? He would have me for one of the badgers. Thee? Stephen? It was a cry of pain as well as horror. Yea, mistress, and when I refused, the fellow dealt me a blow, and laid me down senseless, to bear me off willy-nilly, but that good old Lucas Hansen brought mine uncle to mine aid. Then it clasped her hands. Oh, Stephen, Stephen! Now I know how good the Lord is. 
Why e I asked of Tibble to take me daily to Saint Faith's to crave of good Saint Julian to have you all in his keeping, and said he on the way, Methinks, mistress, our dear Lord would hear you if you spake to him direct, with no go between. I did as he bade me, Stephen. I went to the high altar and prayed there, and Tibble went with me. And lo, now he hath brought you back safe. We will have a mass of thanksgiving on the very morn. Stephen's heart could not but bound for it was plain enough for whom the chief force of these prayers had been offered. "'Sweet mistress,' he said, "'they have availed me indeed. Certes, they warded me in the time of sore trial and temptation.' "'Nay,' said Denny, "'thou couldst not have longed to go away from hence with those ill men who live by slaying and plundering.' The present temptation was to say that he had doubted whether this course would not have been the best both for himself and her but he recollected that Giles might be at the gate, and if so, he should feel as if he had rather have bitten off his tongue than have let Dennet know of the state of the case, so he only answered, There be sorer temptations in the world for us poor rogues than little home-biting house-crickets like thee wot of, mistress. Well, the ye can pray for us without knowing all. Stephen had never consciously come so near love-making, and his honest face was all one burning glow with a suppressed feeling, while Dennet lingered till the curfew warned them of the lateness of the hour, both with a strange, undefined sense of pleasure in being together in the summer twilight. Day after day passed on with no news of Giles or Will Weary. The alderman grew uneasy, and sent Stephen to ask his brother to write to Randolph, or to someone else in Wolsey's sloop, to make inquiries at Bruges, but Ambrose was found to have gone abroad in the train of Sir Thomas More, and nothing was heard till they returned six weeks later, when Ambrose brought home a small packet which had been conveyed to him through one of the Emperor's suit. It was tied up with a long, tough, pale wisp of hair, evidently from the mane or tail of some Flemish horse, and was addressed to Master Ambrose Birkenholt, menial clerk to the most worshipful Sir Thomas More, knight under sheriff of the city of london these greetings within when ambrose could open the missive was another small parcel and a piece of coarse brown paper on which was scrawled good ambrose birkenholt i pray thee to stand my friend and let all know whom it may concern that when this same billet comes to hand i shall be far on the march to high germany with the company of lusty fellows in the emperor's services they be commanded by the good knight, Sir John Fulford. If thou canst send tidings to my mother, bid her to keep her heart up, for I shall come back a captain, full of wealth and honour, and that will be better than hammering for life, or being wedded against mine own will. There never was troth plight between my master's daughter and me, and my time is over, so I be quit with them, and I thank my master for his goodness. They shall all hear of me some these days. Will Wary is my groom, and commends him to his mother. And so, commending me and all the rest to Our Lady and the Saints, thine to command, Giles Headley, man-at-arms in the honourable company of Sir John Fulford, knight. On a separate strip was written, Give this packet to the little Moorish maid, and tell her that I will bring her better by and by, and mayhap make her a knight's lady, but on thy life say not to any other. It was out now. 
Ambrose's head was more in Sir Thomas's books than in real life at all times, for he would long ago have inferred something, from the jackdaw's favourite phrase, from God's modes of haunting his steps, and making him the bearer of small tokens, an orange, a signal cake, a bag of walnuts or almonds to Mistress Aldonza, and of the smiles, blushes, and thanks with which she greeted them. Nay, had she not burst into tears and entreated to be spared when Lady Moore wanted to make a match between her and the big porter, and had not her distress led Mistress Margaret to appeal to her father, who had said he should as soon think of wedding the silver-footed Thetis to Polyphemus? Tilly Valley, Master Moore, the lady had answered, will all your fine pagan gods hinder the wretch from starving on earth and leading apes in hell? Margaret had answered that Aldonza should never do the first, and Sir Thomas had gravely said that he thought those black eyes would lead many a man on earth before they came to the latter fate. Ambrose hid the parcel for her deep in his bosom before he asked permission of his master to go to the dragon court with the rest of the tidings. "'He always was an unmannerly cub,' said Master Headley, as he read the letter. "'Well, I've done my best to make a purse out of a sow's ear. I've done my duty by poor Robert's son, and if he will be such a fool as to run after blood and wounds, I have no more to say, though tis pity of the old name. Ha, what's this? Wedded against my will, no troth plight. Forsooth, I thought my young master was mighty slack. He hath some other matter on his mind, hath he? Run into some coil, mayhap, with a beggar wench. Well, we need not be beholden to him. Ha, done it, my maid? Then it screwed up her little mouth and looked very demure, but she twinkled her bright eyes and said, My heart will not break, sir. I am in no haste to be wed. Her father pinched her cheek and said she was a silly wench, but perhaps he marked the dancing step with which the young mistress went about her household cares, and how she was singing to herself songs that were certainly not Willow Willow. Ambrose had no scruple in delivering to Aldonza the message and token, when he overtook her on the stairs of the house at Chelsea, carrying up a lapful of roses to the still-room, where Dame Alice Moore was rejoicing in setting her stepdaughters to housewifely tasks. There came a wonderful illumination and agitation over the girl's usually impassive features, giving all that they needed to make them surpassingly beautiful. "'Woe is me!' was, however, her first exclamation, "'that he should have given up all for me!' Oh, if I had thought it! But while she spoke as if she were shocked and appalled, her eyes belied her words. They shone with the first absolute certainty of love, and there was no realizing as yet the years of silent waiting and anxiety that must go by. Nay, perhaps an entire lifetime of uncertainty of her letters, truth or untruth, life or death. Dame Alice called her, and in a rambling, maundering way, charged her with loitering and gadding with the young men, and Margaret saw by her colour and by her eyes that some very strange thing had happened to her. Margaret had, perhaps, some intuition, for was not her heart very tender towards a certain young banister by name Roper, whom her father doubted as yet, because of his Lutheran inclinations? By and by she discovered that she needed Aldonza to comb out her long dark hair, and, ere long, she had heard all the tale of the youth cured by the girl's father, and all his gifts, and how Aldonza deemed him too great and too good for her. Poor Giles! 
though she knew she should never do more than look up to him with love and gratitude from afar. And she never so much as dreamt that he would cast an eye on her save in kindness. Oh, yes, she knew what he had taught the daw to say, but then she was a child, she durst not deem it more. And Margaret Moore was more eager and kind than worldly wise, and she encouraged Aldonza to wait and watch, promised protection from all enforced suits and suitors, and gave assurances of shelter as her own attendant as long as the girl should need it. Master Headley, with some sighing and groaning, applied himself to write to the mother at Salisbury what had become of her son, but he had only spent one evening over the trying task, when, just as the supper bell was ringing, with Master Hope and his wife as guests, there were horses' feet in the court, and Master Tiptoff appeared, with a servant on another horse, which carried besides a figure in camlet, on a pillion. No sooner was this same figure lifted from her steed and set down the steps, while the master of the house and his daughter came out to greet her, and she began, "'Master Alderman Headley, I am here to know what you have done with my poor son.' "'Alack, good cousin!' "'Alack me no alacks,' she interrupted, holding up her riding-rod. "'I'll have no dissembling. There have been enough of that, gals Headley. "'Thou hast sold him, body and soul, to one of yon cruel, bloodthirsty, plundering, burning captains, "'that the poor child may be slain and murdered. "'Is this the fair promise that you made to his father, "'whiling him away from his poor mother, a widow, "'with talking of teaching him the craft and giving him your daughter? "'My son, Tip-Top here, told me the spousal was delayed and delayed.' and he doubted whether it would ever come off. But I thought not that, so sending him beyond seas to make merchandise of him. And you call yourself an alderman. The gown should be stripped off the back of you, and shall be if there be any justice in London for a widow woman. Nay, cousin, you have heard some strange tale, said Master Headley, who, much as he would have dreaded the attack beforehand, faced it the more calmly and manfully because the accusation was so outrageous. Ay, so I told her, began her son-in-law, that she hath been neither to have nor to hold since the— And how should I be to have or to hold by a nincompoop like thee? she said, turning round on him. That would have me sit down and be content, forsooth, when mine only son is kidnapped to be sold to the Turks or to work in the galleys, for aught I know. Mistress, here Master Hope's voice came in, I would counsel you to speak less loud, and hear before you accuse. We of the City of London know Master Alderman Headley too well to hear him railed against. Ah, you're all of a piece, she began, but by this time Master Tip-Top had managed at least to get her into the hall, and had exchanged words enough with the alderman to ensure himself that there was an explanation, nay, that there was a letter from Giles himself. This the indignant mother presently was made to understand and as the alderman had borrowed the letter in order to copy it for her, it was given to her. She could not read, and would trust no one but her son-in-law to read it to her. "'Yea, you have it very pat,' she said, "'but how am I to be assured tis not all writ here to hoodwink a poor woman like me?' "'Tis Giles's hand,' averred Tip-Top. "'And if you will,' added the alderman, with wonderful patience, "'tomorrow you may speak with the youth who received it.' Come, sit down and sup with us, and then you shall learn from Smallbones how this mischance befell, all from my sending two young huts together, and one who, though a good fellow, could not hold all in rule. Ay, you hear reasons for anything, she muttered, but being both weary and hungry, 
she consented to eat and drink, while Tip-Top, who was evidently ashamed of her violence and anxious to excuse it, managed to explain that a report had been picked up at Romsey by a barefooted friar from Salisbury, that young Giles Headley had been seen at Ghent by one of the servants of a wool merchant, riding with a troop of free companions in the emperor's service. All the rest was deduced from this intelligence by the dame's own imagination. After supper she was invited to interrogate Kit and Stephen, and her grief and anxiety found vent in fierce scolding at the misrule which had permitted such a villainous Fulford to be haunting and tempting poor fatherless lads. Master Headley had reproached poor Kit for the same thing, but he could only represent that Giles, being a free man, was no longer under his authority. However, she stormed on, being absolutely convinced that her son's evasion was everyone's fault but his own. Now it was the alderman for misusing him, overtasking the poor child, and deferring the marriage. Now it was the little pert poppet, Dennis, who had flouted him. Now it was the bad company he had been led to, the poor babe who had been bred to godly ways. The alderman was really sorry for her, and felt himself to blame so far as that he had shifted the guidance of the expedition to such an insufficient head as poor Smallbones, so he let her rail on as much as she would, till the storm exhausted itself, and she settled into the trust that Giles would soon grow weary and return. The good man felt bound to show her all hospitality, and the civilities to country cousins were in proportion to the rarity of their visits. So Mrs. Headley stayed on after Tiptoff's return to Salisbury, and had the best view feasible of all the pageants and diversions of autumn. She saw some magnificent processions of clergy, she was welcomed at a civic banquet and drank of the loving cup, and she beheld the Lord Mayor's show in all its picturesque glory of emblazoned barges on the river. In fact, she found the position of Denison in an alderman's household so very agreeable that she did her best to make it a permanency. Nay, Dennet soon found that she considered herself to be waiting there and keeping guard till her son's return should establish her there, and that she viewed the girl already as a daughter, for which Dennet was by no means obliged to her. She lavished counsel on her hostess, found fault with the maidens, criticized the cookery, walked into the kitchen and still-room with assistance and directions, and even made a strong effort to possess herself of the keys. It must be confessed that Dennet was saucy. It was her weapon of self-defense, and she considered herself insulted in her own house. There she stood, exalted on a tall pair of pattens, before the stout oaken table in the kitchen where a glowing fire burned. Pewter, red and yellow earthenware, and clean scrub trenchers made a goodly show. A couple of men-cooks and twice as many scullions obeyed her behest, only the superior of the two first ever daring to argue a point with her. There she stood, in her white apron, with sleeves turned up, daintily compounding her mincemeat for Christmas, when in stalked Mrs. Headley to offer her counsel and aid, but this was lost in a volley of barking from the long-backed, bandy-legged, churn-spit dog, which was awaiting its turn at the wheel, and which ran forward, yapping with malign intentions towards the dame's scarlet hose ankles. She took her petticoats at him, but Dennet tittered even while declaring that Troy hurt nobody. Mrs. Headley reviled the dog, and then proceeded to advise Dennet that she should top her citron finer. Dennet made answer that, Father liked a good stout piece of it. 
Mistress Headley offered to take the chopper and instruct her how to compound it, all in the true serum style. Gramercy, mistress, but we follow my granddame's recipe, said Dennet, grasping her implement firmly. Come, child, be not above taking a lesson from thine elders. Where's the goose? What? As the girl looked amazed, where hast thou lived not to know that a live goose should be bled into the mincemeat? I have never lived with barbarous savage folk, said Dennet, and therewith she burst into an irrepressible fit of laughter, trying in vain to check it, for a small and mischievous owl, freshly promoted to the office of scullion, had crept up and pinned a dishcloth to the substantial petticoats, and as Mistress Headley whisked round to see what was the matter, like a kitten after its tail, it followed her like a train, while she rushed to box the ears of the offender, crying, "'You set him on it, you little saucy vixen! I saw it in your eyes. Let the rascal be scourged!' "'Not so,' said Dennet, with prim mouth and laughing eyes. "'Far be it from me, but tis ever the want of the kitchen, when those come there who have no call thither.' Mistress Headley flounced away, dishcloth and all, to go whimpering to the alderman with her tale of insults. She trusted that her cousin would give the pert wench a good beating. She was not a whit too old for it. "'How oft did you beat Giles, good kinswoman?' said Janet demurely, as she stood by her father. "'Wished, wished, child,' said her father. "'This may not be. I cannot have my guest flouted. "'If she act as our guest, I will treat her with all honour and courtesy,' said the maiden. But when she comes where we look not for guests, there is no saying what the black guard may take it on them to do. Master Headley was mischievously tickled at the retort, and not without hope that it might offend his kinswoman into departing. But she contented herself with announcing all imaginable evils from Dennet's ungoverned condition, with which she was prevented in her beneficence from interfering by the father's foolish fondness. He would rue the day. Meanwhile, if the alderman's peace on one side was disturbed by his visitor, on the other, suitors for Dennet's hand gave him little rest. She was known to be a considerable heiress, and though Mistress Headley gave everyone to understand that there was a contract with Giles, and that she was awaiting his return, this did not deter more wooers than Dennet ever knew of from making proposals to her father. Jasper Hope was offered, but he was too young, and besides a mercer and Dennet and her father agreed that her husband must go on with the trade. Then there was a master armorer, but he was a widow with sons and daughters as old as Dennet, and she shook her head and laughed at the bare notion. There also came a young knight who would have turned the dragon court into a tilt-yard, and spent all the gold that long years of prudent toil had amassed. If Mistress Headley deemed each denial the result of her vigilance for her son's interest, she was the more impelled to expatiate on the folly of leaving a maid of sixteen to herself, to let the household go to rack and ruin, while as to the wench, she might prank herself in her own conceit, but no honest man would soon look at her for a wife, if her father left her to herself, without giving her a good stepmother, or at least putting a kinswoman in authority over her. The alderman was stung. He had certainly warmed a snake on his hearth, and how was he to be rid of it? He secretly winked at the resumption of a forge fire that had been abandoned, because the noise and smoke incommoded the dwelling-house, and Kit Smallbones hammered his lattice there, when the guest might be taking her morning nap. But this had no effect in driving her away, though it may have told upon her temper, 
and good-humoured Master Headley was harassed more than he had ever been in his life. "'It puts me past my patience,' said he, turning into Tibble's special workshop one afternoon. "'Here hath Mistress Hillier of the Eagle been with me full of proposals that I would give my poor wench to that scapegraced lad of hers, who hath twice been called to account before the guild, but who now, forsooth, is to turn over a new leaf. So I wist would the dragon under him, quoth Tibble. I told her was not to be thought of, and then what does the dame but sniff the air and protest that I had better take heed, for there may not be so many who would choose a spoiled, misruled maid like mine. There's the work of yonder serum woman. I tell thee, Tib, never was bull in the ring more baited than am I. Yea, sir, returned Tib, there'll be no help for it till our young mistress be wed. Ay, that's the rub, but I've not seen one with whom I could mate her, let alone one who would keep up the own house. Giles would have done that passively, though he were scarce worthy of the wench, even without an expressive shake of the head denoted the rest. And now if he ever comes home at all, he'll be as a foul-mouthed, plundering scarecrow, like the kites of men-at-arms, who, if they lose not their lives, lose all that makes an honest life in the Italian wars. I would have writ to Edmund Burgess, but I hear his elder brother is dead, and he is driving a good traffic at York. Be like too he is wedded. Nay, said Tibble, I could tell of one who would be true and faithful to your worship, and a loving husband to Mistress Dennett, ay, and would be a master that all of us would gladly cleave to for he is godly after his lights, and sound-hearted, and wots what good work be, and can do it. That were a son-in-law, Tib, of who speakest thou? Is he of good birth? Yea, of gentle birth and breeding. And willing? But that they all are. Wherefore, then, hath he never made suit? He hath not yet his freedom. Who be it, then? He that made this little elbow-piece for the suit that Queen Margaret ordered for the little King of Scots returned Tibble, producing an exquisite miniature bit of workmanship. Stephen Birkenholt, the fool's nephew, mine own prentice. Yea, and the best worker in steel we have yet turned out. Since the sickness of last winter hath stiffened my joints and dimmed mine eyes, I had rather trust such dainty work such as this to him than to myself. Stephen, Tibble, hath he set thee on to this? No, sir, we both know too well what becometh us, but when you were casting about it for a mate for my young mistress, I could not think how men seek far, and overlook the jewel at their feet. He hath not. That brother of his will give him not. He hath what will be better for the old dragon and for your worship's self than many a bag of gold, sir. Thou sayest truly there, Tib. I know him so far that he would not be the ingrate Jack to turn his back on the old master or the old man. He is a good lad. But, but, I've ever set my face against the prentice wedding the master's daughter, save when he is of their own house, like Giles. Tell me, Tibble, deemest thou that the varlet has dared lift his eyes to the left? I wot not a thing of love, said Tibble, somewhat grimly. I have seen not. I only told your worship where a good son and a good master might be had. Is it your pleasure, sir, that we take an affray of sequel from Simon Collier for the new furnace? He's as purest, if a mark more of the children spoke as if he put the recommendation of the son and master on the same line as that of the coal. Mr. Headley answered the business matters absently, and ended by saying he would think on the council. 
in tibble's workroom with the clatter of a forge close to them they had not heard a commotion in the court outside Dennett had been standing on the steps cleaning her tame starling's cage when mistress headley had suddenly come up out in the gallery behind her hotly scolding her laundress and waving her cap to show how ill-starched it was the bird had taken fright and flown to the tree in the court Dennett hastened in pursuit but all the boys and children in the court rushing out after her her blandishments had no chance and gold spot had fluttered on to the gateway stephen had by this time come out and hastened to the gate hoping to turn the truant back from escaping into cheapside but all in vain it flew out while the market was in full career and he could only call back to her that he would not lose sight of it out he hurried then it waiting in a sort of despair by the tree for a time that seemed to her endless until stephen reappeared under the gate with a signal that all was well she darted to meet him yea mistress here he is the little caitiff he was just knocked down by this country lad's cap happily not hurt i told him you would give him a tester for your bird with all my heart and dennett produced the coin oh stephen are you sure he is safe thou bad gold spot to run away from me wink with thine eye thou saucy rogue wottest thou not but for stephen thy might be blinding thy sweet blue eyes with hot needles his wing is grown since the molting said stephen he should be cut to hinder such mischances will you do it i will hold him said dennett ah tis pity the beauteous green gold bedropped wing that no armour of thine can equal stephen not even that for the little king of scots but shouldst not be so silly a bird goldie even though thine excuse thou hast there peck not ill birdling know thy friends master still and with such pretty nonsense the two stood together dennett in her white cap short crimson kirtle little stiff collar and white bib and apron holding her bird upside down in one hand and with the other trying to keep his angry beak from pecking stephen who in his leathern coat and apron grimed as well as his black hair with soot stood towering above her stooping to hold up the lustrous wing with one hand while he used his smallest pair of shears with the other to clip the pen feathers see there master alderman cried mr sedley bursting on him from the gallery stairs be that what you call fitting for your daughter and your prentice a beggar lad from the heath i ever told you she would bring you to shame thus left to herself and now you see it their heads had been near together over the starling but at this objurgation they started apart both crimson in the cheeks and dennett flew up to her father bird in hand crying oh father father suffer her not he did no wrong he was cutting my bird's wing i suffer no one to insult my child in their own house said the alderman so much provoked as to be determined to put an end to it all at once stephen birkenholt come here stephen came cap in hand red in the face with a strange tumult in his heart ready to plead guilty though he had done nothing but imagining at the moment that his feelings had been action. Stephen, said the alderman, thou art a true and worthy lad. Canst thou love my daughter? I, I crave your pardon, sir, there was no helping it, stammered Stephen, not catching the tone of the strange interrogation and expecting any amount of terrible consequences for his presumption. And thou wilt be a faithful spouse to her and son to me, and Dennett, my daughter, hast thou any distaste to this youth? though he bring naught but skill and honesty oh father father i i had rather have him than any other then stephen birkenholt and dunlet headley ye shall be man and wife so soon as the young man's term be over and he be a free man so 
though he continue to be that which he seems at present thereto i give my word i giles headley alderman of the chief ward and thereof ye are witnesses all of you and god's blessing on it a tremendous hurrah arose led by kit smallbones from every workman in the court and the while stephen and dennet unaware of anything else flew into one another's arms while goldspot on whom the operation had been fortunately completed took refuge on, upon stephen's head oh mr stennett i have made you black all over was stephen's first word heed not i ever love the black she cried as her eyes sparkled so i have done what lives to thy mind my lass said master headley who without ever having thought of consulting his daughter was delighted to see that her heart was with him sir i did not know fully but indeed i should never have been so happy as i am now sir added stephen putting his knee to the ground it nearly wrung my heart to think of hers belonging to another though i never durst daughter aught and while dennet embraced her father stephen sobbed for very joy and with difficulty said in broken words something about a son's duty and devotion they were broken in upon by mistress headley who after standing in mute consternation fell on them in a fury she understood the device now all had been a scheme laced among them for defrauding her poor fatherless child driving him away and taking up this beggarly brat she had seen through the little baggage from the first and she pitied master headley rage was utterly ungovernable in those days and she actually was flying to attack dennet with her nails when the alderman called her by the wrist and she would have been almost too much for him had not kit smellbones come to his assistance and carried her kicking and screaming like a naughty child into the house there was small restraint of temper in those days even in high life and below it there was some reason for the employment of the padlock and the ducking-stool floods of tears restored the dame to some sort of composure for she declared she could stay no longer in a house where her son had been ill-used and deceived and she had been insulted the alderman thought the insult had been the other way but he was too glad to be rid of her on any terms to gainsay her and at his own charge undertook to procure a horse and escort to convey her safely to salisbury the next morning he advised stephen to keep out of her sight for the rest of the day giving leave of absence so that the youth as one treading on air set forth to carry to his brother his aunt and if possible his uncle the intelligence that he could as yet hardly believe was more than a happy dream End of chapter 22, recording by Adele de Pinerolis.